Uh, well, we are in the third week of our Advent series. If you're new with us, or maybe um, maybe you're here and you're just like, "Hey, I've, I don't really know. I've been kind of sleeping through this whole thing." Uh, Advent is a time, uh, historical time for the church, uh, where for uh, centuries we have been looking back on the birth of Christ, uh, remembering uh, his advent or his coming. It's a Latin word that means arrival. And so we look back and we look back at the manger scene and we look back at our nativities and we remember uh, Christ's coming and, the, and what he addressed in his coming. And, and, but not just there, but we, it, it spurs us to look forward to the, the promise that Christ made to come back. And so this advent is kind of twofold. We're looking back on the promise that God kept. He made it in a, in a garden. He kept it in a manger. Uh, and then Jesus Jesus made a promise that he's going to come back. And so we're kind of in this season of reflecting and remembering uh, and anticipating. And so that's what we're doing. We've, and kind of how the church does this is uh, by lighting uh, in a, what we call an advent wreath. This doesn't really look like a wreath, uh, but maybe you have a setup in your home. I know my family does. And basically every week of Advent, what we do is we light a candle that signifies or symbolizes a truth uh, that those who are in Christ can grab a hold of, right? That we can, uh, we, we can glean from. Uh, the first week we talked about the peace or the hope of God. The second week we talked about the peace that we have in Christ because of his coming. Uh, and today we're going to continue in this uh, in, in, uh, a conversation on joy, uh, and so and the joy that we can have uh, in Christ because of His advent. You know, I, I read a quote. I shared this with our leadership team uh, before uh, before services. I read a quote this week, just as a, a uh, something I guess just to get us in the, the posture of uh, of what Advent is. Um, of a, a, a there's a pastor in the area that uh, had a had something uh, on his his Instagram story that I saw, uh, and he he quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who said that Advent our whole life is Advent, our whole life is Advent. We our whole life every day is awaiting uh, the the return of uh, of the ultimate. Of the ultimate, so that's what we're doing right now. We're kind of in this limbo, uh, looking back, remembering, reflecting, rejoicing, and we're looking forward to Jesus's return. So that's what we're doing. So we've done that by lighting these candles, and today uh, we've already lit the joy candle. And so that's what we're going to talk about. You know, one of the most familiar songs of this season, uh, and probably some of your favorite uh, of the holiday, is "Joy to the World." Have you heard it, anybody? Uh, you know, "Joy to the World" was written uh, about 300 years ago by a man named Isaac Watts. And it, it has become like the marquee uh, Christmas song of the season, right? You've heard it in the malls as you've been scrambling to get Christmas shopping done. It's in like kind of the credit roll of your, probably your favorite Christmas movie. Uh, it's made it onto our Sunday morning set list uh, in church. It's, it's an important, important song, probably uh, of the 20th century, probably the, the most uh, familiar song that we, that we sing around Christmas. Uh, but what you might not know about about Joy to the World is not only was it written 300 years ago, but it was a hymn written by Isaac Watts based on the passage of Psalm 98. Uh, and, and so as we're, we're going to look there today, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it. You can get there to Psalm 98. Uh, but one of the things that's, um, you know, as, as, as we kind of lean in this morning to this passage and we're talking about Joy to the World, one of the things I think uh, is, is probably helpful to mention that I want to be sensitive to uh, is the reality that I know for many in the room, this season for you uh, probably isn't something you would qualify as joyful. 
right? Like, I think for a lot of us, we, we, as many times in our life, we kind of look around at what's going on in our world, and we say, how in the world can we sing this song? You know, we come into, uh, into Christmas services and the services around this season as we celebrate Advent. I think one of the evals that's consistent about Christmas music is that we just kind of, we mouth the lyrics, but we don't actually sing the lyrics. We don't worship to those lyrics, Right, we, You may have caught yourself in this. I, I catch myself in that. I have to ask the Lord to correct me and, and, and help me see as we sing some of the songs that we've been singing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, what does that mean? And Lord, why am I worshiping right now? Like, can I actually get behind the song and really worship to it and not just mouth those lyrics? Um, and one of the things I think that keeps us from actually worshiping to it is I think a lot of times we don't find reason in our world to, to worship to it. We don't find a lot to be jolly about, right? We look on the news and we see uh, Trump on Twitter again, right? You, you see uh, uh, on Black Friday this like consumeristic materialism that's causing people to get stampeded over like Furbies and uh, you remember Furbies, right? Uh, or Sherpas or whatever, right? Like you, people are, are just going nuts just to consume and to get more. You see uh, maybe in a more serious uh, national level, you see abortion rates just continuing to grow. You see uh, sex trafficking and uh, child and sex trafficking really uh, just thriving today in many parts of the world. Uh, man, racism is a real deal. It's still very alive today. And so, man, there's not seemingly a lot around us to get really uh, in the Christmas spirit about and really get behind the lyrics to joy to the world. Maybe personally, you look in on your life, you look in, uh, into your family unit, and you're just kind of reminded this year, uh, and this is what the holidays typically do, they kind of confront us with some realities that maybe we haven't been, uh, hasn't been as focused when we gather around a dinner table. Now we see a new empty seat that was previously occupied by someone that we dearly loved that has passed away in the last year, or maybe it's just a reminder of the dysfunction in your home. Right, just the uh, the financial strain of this season, the uh, just the unmet expectations that we seem to uh, you know come confront be co- confronted with during the holidays, and so I think for a lot of us, I, I just think that maybe it's it's a reality that there's a large swath of us in this room this morning that maybe find it hard to sing a song like "Joy to the World." There's also probably a group in the room that says. I don't know about them, but I can, I can sing Joy to the World. I'm happy as a hoot, right? Like I've got cash in the bank. I've got a great job. I'm climbing the ladder. I've got all the stuff of Christmas. Like my, my Christmas tree uh, is, is actually being picked up off the ground by all the presents stuffed underneath. Uh, like you, you've got everything you can imagine. And, and because the circumstances in your life uh, really are conducive for, for a, a jolly spirit right now, uh, you think, yeah, I, I've got joy. But the, the problem with that is even that is a counterfeit because you are a phone call away from all of that being taken from you, right? You're, you're the uh, police knocking at the door away from your seemingly uh, grasp on joy being ripped out of your hands. You're, you're a boss calling you into the office telling you, hey, I'm sorry, but we had to make some cutbacks away from what you call joy being just removed altogether, so how is it then that we find joy? Like, wh- where is it? Right? If, if we can't find it in the world and we can't find it in our homes a lot of times, where do we find joy? Well, here's what I believe. I believe as we uh, not only look at the lyrics of the song, Joy to the World, but we get behind the passage, we peer into and study and spend some time marinating in the passage that 
that really uh, inspired the writing of it, I think not only uh, can we walk out of here with joy, uh, with an understanding of where we find joy, but many of us can walk out of here experiencing it and walking in it. So that's what I wanted to do. Uh, if you have your Bibles open there to, to Psalm 98, we're going to start. I just want to read the first three verses, and then we will um, come talk through some things. Is everybody good? Now, I know RC's not preaching, but you're supposed to have some joy this morning, you know, so <laughs> smile a little bit. All right, here we go. Psalm 98 says this. It's the word of the Lord, and it says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of, of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. You know, one of the interesting things about the song, uh, Joy of the World, that you, you also may not be aware of is each uh, stanza, each section of Psalm 98, if you, if you uh, kind of look down through there, there's nine verses. Uh, and and the, 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 um, the passage is written in a way where it's broke up into three sections of three verses. So if you're OCD like me, you're like, yes, I can deal with this. Uh, and, and each section relates to a line that you're probably very, very familiar with in the song, Joy to the World. So the very first section that we look at, uh, and really each section also gives us a glimpse into an attribute or a, 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 um, a, an identity of who Christ is, that if we would get it, right, if we would understand what it is that it's saying about Jesus, that we can find out where joy lies and how we too can experience it. So the very first section, those first three verses that we, we read, it says this, it says, um, uh, it, the it, Basically, the very first section relates to, in the song, Joy to the World. You may have remembered these, these lines. Let me see this too. It says, Joy to, the, Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Now, I'm not going to sing these as we get to I'm just going to read them. Okay, that's for your benefit as well. Just because it says a new song doesn't mean that's my song. Uh, Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Okay, the Savior reigns. You all remember that? Are you familiar? So, basically what the psalmist and Isaac Watts is saying is they're giving us the why behind our joy. Why is it, church, that we can have joy? Well, what we see in the first three verses is this highlight of what God has done, how he has worked for our good salvation through Christ. And so when you see this, you'll see what I'm saying. I'm going I'm to read some of these, these parts here to you. He says, um, Sing to the Lord. Why? He says, for he has done marvelous things. And then he qualifies what those marvelous things are. He says this, uh, his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Okay? It goes on. It says in verse 2, the Lord has made known his salvation. And then in the last part of verse 3, what's it say? All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So the why is that we have a reason to sing this morning, church believer in Christ and we have a reason to sing joyfully, not just in here, just hum-ha, right? Like, but we have a reason, truthfully, to sing this morning because of what the Lord has done to save. Now, when the writer of Psalm is writing, of this Psalm is writing this, 
what the psalmist is, is reflecting on is the salvation of the Israelites out of Egyptian captivity f- uh, for 400 years. If you know the story, and I know many of you do, uh, the people of God were enslaved to Egypt. They were in captivity. They were made to uh, work hard, laborious uh, uh, jobs. They, they were, uh, in many ways, hopeless. But through miraculous means, what did God do? He brought his people out. And here's the thing. If you know the story, Israel did nothing. They did nothing to merit it. They did nothing to deserve it. They didn't do anything to force God's hand. God looked on his people and he moved towards them. If you know the story, he raised up a man from within named Moses. And you even know, Moses even tried to, like, if you think that, the Israelites did anything for this. It's, it's funny when you read the account, like Moses even tried to take himself out of the equation. He said, God, I stutter, right? What did God say? I don't, go, right? He said, I'm going to be with you. Uh, and he, he led his people out by a strong hand through the plagues and just miraculous signs and wonders. And then the people of God, if you thought it would get any better, they're pinned up on the banks of the Red Sea and the Egyptians are on their tail. They're about to just to take their people back and to, and to really turn up the heat on, on the uh, Israelites. And what does God do? He parts the sea, so that they might walk through, and it says on dry ground, right? They did nothing. It wasn't a staff. It wasn't a man. It wasn't, it wasn't a prayer. It was God moving towards his people by his hand. And what the Bible wants us to see in this passage, what the psalmist believed, and what I think Isaac Watts saw is that if you are in Christ, you have a reason to sing because what, is God, is, what God has worked for you and in you, listen to me, despite you. Not because of you, but for his own name and for his own glory. The reality of your salvation is the same. It is a miraculous intervention of God toward you. And it's, what the amazing thing is, is that we did nothing for it. Right, what does is, what is Ephesians 2, 8 say? For by grace you have been saved through what? Through your hard work, through your family heritage, through because your grandmama was a was a good woman and held the doors at church every Sunday. It doesn't say that. What's it say? For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And this is not your own doing. Why? So that no man may boast. So it is the free gift of God. God does it. And he always has. It's always been the narrative. The reality of our salvation. And just a reflection on our salvation is the root, is the source Isaac Watts saw, and is the source the psalmist tells us for our joy this morning. If you're in the room, believer, and maybe you're sitting here and you say, I I don't find reason to sing. Maybe it's because you've forgotten what God has done in you through Christ. But there's two great things that this passage reminds us of that I think we also need to reflect on if we are to truly have joy this year. Because of how God saves. The first is this, that since it is God doing the saving, God's arm, his mighty hand, the passage says, that is moving, there is not a person in the far far ends of the earth, in the deepest jungle in Africa, in the middle of your home or workplace that is outside the reach of God. You see, if it's on us, then we got to get busy. And And things look a little bleak. Right? How are we going to get to the people that, that we don't even know about? But here's the thing, because God holds it all, because he holds the heavens, because he hung the star in the sky. There's not a person out 
outside the reach of God. There's also this encouragement for you if you're in the room and you're saying, listen, I mean, I want to have joy, but gosh, I don't feel like I can come before the Lord because if he would just, if I laid myself exposed before him, do you know what I've done? Do you know the, the accumulation of my sin? Do you know the sum of my transgression before the Lord? Here's what I want you to understand. There is no one. No one, because it's all God. There is no one outside the reach of God. There is no one that has out the cross of Christ. It is his work alone. It is good pleasure to save. It is not because we've merited it or deserved it at all. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this. If it was God alone who saved us, then listen to me. Then he is sufficiently capable and powerful and uh, able to keep us and secure us to the end. John 6 tells us this. It says, this is the will of him who sent me. This is Jesus talking. That, all, uh, that of all that he has given me. Did you check that? Out of all that who has? God has given the son. What does he say? I lose nothing. Man, there is there is reason for joy this morning, church, because there is an assurance of salvation for the believer in Christ. It is the Christian perspective. It is the Christian worldview. It is the Christian understanding of the doctrine of salvation. It is the only way for, to have assurance of salvation. It's the only way. You don't have to lay your head on your pillow at night and say, because I messed up, because I uh, got cut off on the, on the way to work. Uh, you know, I got cut off in Nashville traffic, and I said something I shouldn't. Or, or maybe I, I've missed a day of, uh, of church. Is the Lord going to smite me? Is he going to remove my ticket, punch to heaven? No, he's not. Because it is, uh, he's already sat, put his son Jesus on the cross, and he's not going to put him back on it again. If he has saved you, he will keep you. But that is not a license, right, to live like hell, right? That is all reason for us to press in to knowing God more and loving him more and living lives of joy rooted in the reality of his son. But, so we can't lose our salvation, so therefore we can't lose our joy. But here's the thing I want you to understand this morning. We definitely can forget it. We can definitely forget it. In uh, verse 3, I think this is what the psalmist gets at. Look what he says here. He says, he has remembered. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. Now, if you read that passage and you're like me, you're like, what? What do you mean the Lord remembered something? You've probably seen this other places in the Bible. I'll show you another one in a minute. But, man, what do you mean that God remembered? He is all-knowing. Right? Doesn't Isaiah say that his understanding is unsearchable? You know about God who is the author of creation, who spoke it all into being? He, need, he had an epiphany? No. He doesn't he didn't, he didn't have light bulbs go off in his head. He made the light bulb. Right? Like, like God, it, you're like, no, he didn't. We're not getting into that. Listen. God made the man who made the light bulb. He doesn't have lapses in memory. So when we see language like this in the Bible, what is it for? Why, why, do, why does it say this? Here's what I want you to understand. When the Bible talks about God remembering, it's not because he forgot, but because maybe we did. 
Because maybe we forgot. The language in the Bible that we see here when it says that God remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel is not so that we, we look and say, oh, God forgot something. It's because maybe we forgot, and the language is there to demonstrate and communicate to God's people that we can trust the Lord because God is faithful to his people. Let me show you another example, and you'll really grab this. Exodus chapter 2. We've got this passage on the screen for you. In Exodus, Exodus 2, if you remember, this is before he calls Moses to lead the people out. Uh, Egypt is in captivity. Uh, uh, Israel is in captivity in Egypt. They had been there for 400 years. Uh, they've been groaning and crying out to the Lord. In verse 23, there's a little blurb at the bottom of chapter 2 before it gets into 3 that is super important, often neglected. In verse 23, it says this, During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of, uh, of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And it says they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And look what it says. And God remembered. He remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and Jacob. God saw the people, Israel, and God knew. So when we read Psalm 98 and we read this passage, or especially this passage here, we read this, we have this mental image of, man, God sitting up in heaven. He begins to hear something. He looks down and sees his people crying. Oh, yeah, I made a promise to their forefathers. That's not what happened. Right? God, didn't, God didn't take his eyes or his hands off of creation. God didn't uh, just kind of check out from his people. That's not what happened. So when we read this in, in Exodus 2 and in Psalm 98, that God remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. It doesn't mean that God had forget, forgotten them. It means that when we look at our lives and we wonder, does God hear me? Does God, why would God allow these series of events to unfold right before the holiday? I went to work and my boss called me in, said that we, we, we had to make some budget cuts, you're out. Or uh, you got a bad medical report recently, your kids are off the rocker. And you wonder, where is God in all of this? This passage is here, not so we'd say, oh, God forgot. But no, listen, so that we would remember that God is faithful. So that we would remember what God has done. So we would remember our reason for joy is what God has already accomplished in his son Jesus on the cross. This is part of what Advent is about. Not just looking at the manger, but looking at the cross. Remembering what Jesus has done. If you're in the room and you've placed faith in, in the risen Christ and, uh, and you're, you're wondering what uh, reason you have to, to sing joy to the world today, the issue isn't the Lord. The issue is potentially that you've forgotten him. John Piper says it this way, and this is in paraphrase. He says, the single biggest threat to our joy isn't despair. It's not despair or disappointment. Okay, so, so track with me. He says, the single biggest threat to your joy this morning isn't necessarily the events that are going to unfold in your life. It's not the headlines on the news. The single biggest uh, threat to your joy isn't your infertility. It's not your singleness. It's not that altogether. He says the single biggest threat to your joy is your forgetfulness and distraction. Gosh, I love that quote. Because how true is that? Man, we, sometimes we walk in here like, gosh, I can't sing, I can't worship, I can't listen to R.C. Not just because he goes long. <laughs> I have to take a jab. I'm only up here every once in a while. It's not like, I can't worship, I can't pay attention, I can't lean into this. Maybe you've forgotten what Jesus has done for you. 
Man, we have reason for joy this morning because of Jesus, the Savior. Let's continue in this passage, verse 4 through 6 says this. It says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in joyous song. So in light of what we just talked about, in light of the understanding of what Jesus has done to save, it says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in the joyous song and sing praises, even if you can't carry an oath. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre and with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise. Look at this. Before the king, the Lord. So this second section or stanza here relates to the line in Joy to the World. You may be familiar with it. It says this, Joy to the Lord, uh, to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her who? King. Let earth receive her king. So, so the first two lines reflect uh, the heartbeat of this passage and give us, if the why was the first section, this is the how. How do we then worship? How are we to respond in light of the joy that is given to us because of Christ's salvation? It says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. So what's in mind here is if, if you would uh, kind of look back and um, kind of in Roman history, when, a, uh, when after a, a victory, they would uh, come in, there'd be this huge parade, and there'd just be this cheering and this marching, and uh, it'd just be this victorious chant. The people would be throwing stuff in the streets, and, and the general would ride in down through the streets. There'd just, just be this jubilation that would, like, if you've watched... Uh, if you watch the, uh, the Grinch, the one with uh, Jim Carrey, like uh, the hubilation, right? It's like this, this is the picture that we, uh, we're supposed to see in our minds. It's like there's this, this vibrant, uh, joyful worship happening in light of the one, in the, the one coming through, the general, the, the leader, in light of what he has done. This is exactly what's being encouraged in this passage. All right, when we read this, the reality of this text is that God's rule in our lives, because of what he's done in verse 1 through 3, right? God's rule in our lives should change the way that we sing. It should change the way that we sing. Listen to the emotion of the passage. Break forth in joyous song and sing praises, exclamation point. But so often, guys, that's not what we do, is it? Right? We come in here as hands in the pockets. We just mouth the lyrics and if we're lucky, we might get a little bit of a sway going, right? And that's only if Brad or somebody's like really drumming hard. Uh, man, that's not what this passage is saying. And so this, this text should confront us. It should challenge our worship. Does it challenge the way personally that you worship? Well, let's not take this on a corporate level. Let me ask individually, is this how you worship? Are you singing joyously unto the Lord? You know, um, when I read this passage and, and uh, was preparing to, to preach this this week, um, I, I was reminded of my first mission trip that I went on. Uh, my wife and I, we got married in 2010, uh, and shortly after that, we, um, we went, I'm sorry, we got married in 2011. Forgive me. I saw that. I saw her. I was like, uh, sorry. In my heart, I was already yours. Um, so prior to that, we were engaged. That's right. We were engaged. We went on this mission trip, 2010, and uh, and we uh, we went to Haiti, and uh, shortly after the earthquake, and man, things were like wrecked. It was it was 
rubble in the streets. The buildings were toppled. The, the um, cathedral in the middle of the city was uh, just busted up, laying in the road. I remember getting the first thing I saw when I got out of the plane was we went into the airport, and it was like dirt floors, uh, chaos, trying to find our bags. It was a miracle of the Lord that we got out of there. And then the first thing we see when we get out of the airport uh, was a kind of this just kind of— um, breezeway kind of area when you walk out and there's chain link fence or all the way around it and there was just people just thralls of people just pressed up against the chain link fence pregnant women with their bellies pressed up against the fence begging my first international this is my first mission trip and uh i was floored needless to say man there was a lot of things in haiti that that just kind of man were different you wake up in the morning you hear uh, a, a rooster or some chicken or something going nuts outside, then guess what's on the menu tonight? Chicken, right? When it, when it, stops, when it stops making noise, that means that you're eating it. Uh, and um, there's a couple things I took away from Haiti, some things that uh, I was kind of shocked by, some things that, uh, you know, I think I still remember. A couple things. One's humorous. Um, the coffee. Uh, the coffee was incredible, and it, but it was that dark stuff. Some of you like to drink, right? I mean, I'm talking about it would stain the ceramic uh, it, or the porcelain, whatever this stuff is your coffee cups are made out of. Um, the next thing was the mosquitoes. They would literally lift you off the ground. Uh, they're, not really, but they're everywhere. Uh, and the last thing was the worship. And this is the serious point. I mean, we would go into places uh, and teach uh, teach Bible to kids, um, to other pastors, uh, spend time just opening the word together with these guys. And they would have walked all night long to get there. And what was amazing was the worship, man. They would, it didn't matter uh, who, uh, anybody could be in the band, right? As long as you uh, could pick up their Sega Genesis guitar or just be on, uh, just be on a drum in any kind of rhythm, they would find some song to sing to it, uh, and, and they would just sing and sing and sing. And if you've ever been there, you probably know what I'm talking about. Sing and sing and sing. And I'm talking about four-hour services, and three of them are worship. Uh, and, and I'm just, I mean, it took some getting used to, but I was just looking around. I was like, what are they singing for? What do they have to sing for? Like, we're in a shack. They have, like, their city is busted. There is chaos everywhere. These people walked all night to get here because the traffic is horrendous. You, they, they don't have a lot to eat. There's, like, orphans everywhere. It was, it, there was so much I was confronted by, like, why are they singing? But here's what happened to me. On the backside of Haiti, I came back home to my church in Knoxville, and I walk into a room that's air conditioning. Uh, I, 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 we have comfortable seats. The people come from good jobs, great families, roof over their head, more clothes than they have to, to wear in a year. And we walk in with our hands in our pockets, and I'm like, what is happening? What are we doing? Here's what I believe the Haitians knew and what I believe also Isaac Watts understood and the writer of the psalm grasped when he wrote this. Is that not only was God Savior, Jesus the Savior, but that Jesus was the King. That Jesus is the King. He is the King. And not only had he done everything necessary for their salvation, but because he was King, it is King. He is completely sovereign over all the circumstances surrounding their lives. So here's what this means. The ground can shake and break up. The buildings can topple. And if Jesus is still on his throne, there's a reason to sing. 
There's a reason to sing. Here's what, I, here's what I want to challenge you with. When happiness is rooted in the person of Christ, when it's rooted in what Jesus has done, the Savior King, it transcends circumstance. And it gives, is, is given a new name. It's called joy. When happiness is rooted in the person of Christ, it is given a new name. It transcends circumstances. Your world might be spinning out of control in your home. Right, you may have not seen your, your, your boy might not have went, come home. Your, your wife might be uh, filing uh, for divorce. You may, may not have uh, enough coming in than what's going out. But when it's rooted in a person of Jesus, his work stands and he is on his throne today. Therefore, we have joy. Let's, ra- let's wrap up this last point by closing out this passage. Verse 7 through 9 says this. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the world and those that, who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon calls this section of scripture the, uh, the song of the seas and the hallelujah of the hills. I love it. This, uh, this little part here is what the, um, uh, the, the psalmist wants us to see, uh, that, that Jesus is the judge. Right, that Jesus is the judge. This is what Isaac Watts uh, saw when he wrote this line. He rules the world. You remember this? He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. You see, because our Lord Jesus is not just Savior and King, he is also judge. There is reason for joy. The hope of the world that creation has been longing for is the day when the judge comes back. And when you think of judge here in the text specifically, it's not necessarily talking as much about his like smiting the wicked, although that is part of it. It's more talking about the judge who will come and right every wrong. That's, that's what's in, in, uh, in mind when the psalmist writes this passage. And so from the day that sin busted up what was perfect in the garden, Creation has been unraveling, and the Bible says it is yearning for the day when the judge comes back. The day when the judge makes all things new. There's no demo day and uh, magnolia treatment to what Jesus is going to do. He's not coming to give renovation to what is. He's coming to wipe it out and start new. He's bringing a new heaven and a new earth. This is what Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 11 when he says this, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. Right? If you watch enough animal plant to know that don't happen on this earth. Right? Look at it, go, it goes on, and says, And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze together. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. Check that. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. I don't even know what an adder is, but it doesn't sound good. All right? They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
He says, this is what's happened. This is what's coming in the second advent. Right, not just looking back, but looking forward. This is what's coming. And then uh, John gets a vision of this uh, as well, and he writes this in, in Revelation 21. Listen, church, I want to say this before I read this. If you're in the room and you are hurting, if you're in the room and you've lost someone, if you're in the room and you are struggling or suffering from something that uh, someone has hurt you or there's a cancer that you're walking in, treatment that you're walking in, you've lost someone, listen to the hope found in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God, look at this, is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning nor crying, nor pain, anymore. It's gone. There's a day coming when it says, neither shall be no mourning, or crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Here's why this matters. Here's why this changes and fuels. It changes our perspective, and it fuels our joy this morning. For those who are in Christ, there is a day where there will not be a scar on your body. There's a day when uh, all those who are broken today will stand upright, renewed. There's a day coming where cancer will, will be no more. Where there's no more flatlining. There's no more disease. There's no more babies waking up in orphanages around the world without mama and daddy. There's going to be a day where there's no more sex trafficking. There's no more child trafficking. There's, there's no more. The battle of sin will be silenced and faith will become sight. This is, listen to me, I want you to hear this. This isn't something you have to hope against hope. This is something you can know. With a sure, this is coming as sure as Christ came. And look at it says here. It says that there will be a day when the former things have passed away. There is a new coming. There's a new coming. Listen, the, the hope found in this text, church, the hope found in this text, and not just in Psalm 98, but in the whole of the Bible, the hope that we can latch on to today, if you know Jesus, is not just that the Lord came down, but listen to me, there's a day where the Lord wins. He wins. He sits on his throne. All things are new. Those who wronged you will be judged rightly. Those who scoffed at the Lord will be judged rightly and met justly there's a day coming where uh this is listen this is why jesus can say in matthew 5 if you remember the passage we talked about retaliation it's why he can say turn the cheek to the one who's who's right if someone strikes your cheek turn the other to him also like that's not that's not like cultural logic that doesn't play out well in our world does it there's a reason why for the believer this is an instruction because there's a day where jesus will right every wrong There's a day where the judge comes, and he makes all things new. You see, there is no joy for us in the things around. There's no joy for us in the things around. There's no joy for you in what you see in your bank account. There's no joy for you in in, in trusting in the momentary, maybe tranquility in your home. There's no joy for you in in anchoring your your, your happiness in uh, 
in the monetary things that you have and the material things that you have and in your career, there's no joy for you there. Because there is no joy this side of heaven. But here's the great news of Advent. Heaven came down. Right? Heaven came down and we anchor our hope there. That is where there's joy. That is where we find joy. That is where we find joy. That is where Isaac Watts saw joy when he looked into Psalm 98 and he saw that, man, we have a, a Lord who is Savior, who is the King, and who is the judge. So do you have joy this morning? Do you know joy this morning? Maybe you've been looking at your circumstances or maybe you've been looking at uh, your stuff and saying, I either can't see joy or I don't have it. And if you look to Christ, there is the fullness of joy. We pray for you. Father, we love you. Lord, I thank you for your word, Father. I thank you for God, I thank you for the uh, truth that we see in your scripture, God, that when everything around us fails us, when everything around us leaves us searching and looking and grasping for something to fill us and something to uh, satisfy us and something to give us true, lasting happiness, there is one thing that we can grab a hold of. There's one thing that by faith alone we can step into, and that is a relationship with Jesus Christ, the fullness of joy. God, I pray that if there's someone in the room who doesn't know that, they never experienced that, or maybe they think they have that and it's placed wrongly. God, today I pray that you would confront, you would convict, and God, you would correct by the work of your Holy Spirit. God, we need you. Would you move in our midst, Father? your glory. It's your name we pray. Amen.